Did you do your homework from last week? I saw you scrambling just now like, shoot, what was it again? <laughs> Don't worry. I won't give you late points, but it will help if you do complete it. And I know I kind of left you hanging last week when we looked at those four dangers that pose a threat to your marriage that can cause it to be unprotected and at risk for the enemy to attack or your own sin that can cause damage or destruction from the inside out. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you're going to want to push pause and go hear what those four things are because today we're countering those dangers with four ways to protect and safeguard your marriage from destruction. So go grab your coffee and get ready because here we go. This isn't a game of ding dong ditch and don't worry, I'm not a solar panel salesman. I'm just here to see you friend. Whether you have spit up stains and cluttered counters or you're still in your heels from work and just getting dinner started, take a minute and come sit with me. Welcome to the JAR podcast with your host Lydia, certified teacher, homeschool boy mom, oh lord help me, and marriage ministry leader bringing you tough lessons from my own journey to soul health and wholeness. Together each week we'll discuss our struggles, pain, and shame. We'll combat labels and lies with biblical truth, and we'll work through our mess and come out stronger, more confident, and rooted in our identity in Christ. So move your pile of laundry over. Better yet, let me help you fold it while we talk. Thanks for letting me in. Now let's get real. I picture us as friends at a coffee shop or on my couch, coffee mugs in hand, Bibles open, tissues nearby. And I picture listening to you as you pour your heart out and vice versa. Two friends working through issues, problems, and pain in our marriages and hearts. And I imagine you sharing a really deep wound that you've kept hidden for a long time and you haven't trusted God with just yet. And me handing you a tissue and sharing with you what God has done in my life and seeing you begin to take that first step toward healing and wholeness. That's what each of these episodes is like for me. And I hope that you feel that way as you listen each week too. And some of you just left some reviews that brought tears to my eyes because that's exactly what is happening. You're continuing to listen, but even more so, you're implementing and learning and applying and you're seeing noticeable change. So thank you for those of you that just left reviews because some wife across the globe is about to click on this podcast And she's going to see that as she wonders if this podcast is for her or if God really can restore or renew such a damaged heart or marriage. And she's going to read your testimony and want to trust God again. So thank you. And at this point, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or if you're my friend in person, then you might feel like I'm beating a dead horse with what I say here you know, with what I say is helpful or useful or necessary for a healthy marriage, and it might start to sound repetitive. Well, as a mom, my kids probably feel the same way about what I tell them. Make your bed, pick up your towel, wash your hands. As a teacher, I know that repetition is a form of learning, and I think even Jesus was pretty repetitive in his conversations with people. But whether or not you've heard me speak to these things or not, keep listening because whether you need to hear this for the 27th time or you're just hearing it for the first, it's up to you to decide what to do with it, right? You could hit the stop button or get out of the app you're listening from. You could unsubscribe. You could listen to the whole thing and think, well, that's nice. Or even, oh, that's a good idea. I want to do that. But then never take action or keep asking God to use it to work in your heart and marriage. 
I hope you do the latter because, well, I think it's worth it. And I've seen it work in my own heart, my marriage, my other relationships, and there's no going back for me. And I know you're here because you want that too. And y'all, I see you in the Facebook group. I hear the things that you say in the DMs or you post in the group. Some of you are even here as a last-ditch effort to save your marriage, and some of you have even told me it's just to survive your marriage, and you've given up all hope on finding happiness or joy or full restoration. Can I just say, first of all, I don't care who your husband is. Do you know who your God is? Your husband might be a big pile of poop scoop right now, and you just want to toss your marriage in the trash. But do you know your God who used mud to heal a man's vision? Do you know the God who bent down to form man from the dust? Do you know the Savior who stood in the middle with a woman caught in adultery and knelt down to draw something in the dirt for only her to see? I don't think God is scared to get his hands dirty. And if I can level with you real quick, I think you're underestimating him. Well, either that or you're just so defeated, sad, lonely, and discouraged that you need to be reminded of his goodness. Be reminded that he is the lifter of your head and that he binds up the brokenhearted. This is for somebody today because normally I sit down and it takes me a while to maybe think of some points to make. And I'm researching or taking breaks, but nope, this is just coming out. So yes, Linda, the Lord sees you. He knows you. He isn't afraid of your mess. And he wants to restore you and your marriage. Maybe these four things that we're about to talk about are four ways to protect and safeguard your marriage because maybe they're technically four weapons or battle strategies. They're ways to fight back. As you listen to them, you might think, those don't really feel like battle strategies. (laughs) Or you might even laugh because they're pretty counterintuitive and countercultural. But so was the way that God showed up in battle sometimes, or led his people like leading Jehoshaphat into battle with the singers on the front lines, or telling Gideon to shrink his army down to 300 men. What the world deems laughable or weak, that's when God shows up. Okay, so as I go, I'm going to give you a short reminder of each of the four points from the last episode, the four P's that are dangerous to your marriage, and then I'm going to give you their counterpart, their remedy. And so this is a quick reminder that if you haven't listened to that, you might want to push pause right now, go back and listen and then come back and pick up where you left off. These four ways to safeguard aren't as cutesy with an alliteration like the four P's from last time, but that's okay. Go grab a notebook and a pen and get ready to take some notes. The first way to protect and safeguard your marriage is humility. The first problem we pointed out last time was pride, and naturally its antonym is humility. I loved this part of the dictionary definition for humility. It said, modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance or rank. And having grown up as a military kid, rank was everything. Rank mattered. Rank was a sign of dignity, effort, work ethic, longevity, education, and authority. And I'm not knocking that for how it it works for them, but in a marriage, there's no promotions or higher ranks. There's no sergeant saluting the major, but I bet sometimes we act like that. We act like a captain in charge. We point to the stars on our shoulder and we claim we have more ground to stand on, more experience, more wisdom, more knowledge, a higher moral standard, or whatever. And I am the guiltiest of the guilty of this. 
I can be such a hoity-toity sometimes because right and wrong matter to me and obedience matters. And is that wrong? No, but does that give me the right to lord it over my husband? No, that emasculates him and makes him feel inferior. And what man of the house wants to step up and be the man or take charge with feeling like he has to salute or fall in line or drop and give me 20? Are you guilty of one-upping? Is your pride in the way? Humility is the counterintuitive counterpart. It's the quiet, unseen, meek, not weak, remedy. Proverbs 22.4 says humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 11.2 says when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. We are meant to serve and love and fight for our husbands according to what 2 Corinthians 10 says with by the humility and gentleness of Christ. And as Philippians 2.3 says, we are supposed to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Hmm. But what if you're sitting there thinking, Lydia, that's great. I know what the Bible says about humility. Or, so how do I actually do that? Because this man over here is getting on my last nerve and I don't think humility is going to do a dang thing. Let me give you a personal example that happened just the other day. I was doing laundry. My husband was sitting on the couch and he kind of woke up in a funk or a mood and I was kind of trying to tiptoe around that and I said something about, or I asked about the plans for the day and there was something on the to-do list that he had said he wanted to do. So I asked him if he wanted to get that done today. I don't remember how exactly I said it, but I know that it was just with curiosity I remember my intention behind what I was asking and I wasn't feeling any sort of anger or anything. So I asked him, hey, do you plan on doing whatever it was today? And he kind of snapped a little bit and then I was kind of taken aback by that and he couldn't see my face. I was folding the laundry, you know, in the hallway down from him and I just kind of paused and, you know, I asked him what that was about and he goes, I I don't know, I think it was just your tone. And so I didn't say anything. (laughs) I bit my tongue and I thought for a second, was it my tone? I replayed it in my head and I came to the conclusion. I asked Holy Spirit to point it out if it was that. And I decided, no, it wasn't my tone. He had woken up in a funk and was already kind of on edge. And I think knowing him well enough now, hearing another item on the to-do list when he's already kind of feeling overwhelmed, it was bad timing on my part didn't excuse him snapping at me and we've talked about this since then and he's understood it but I realized in that moment humility and not fixing it in the moment and saying no it wasn't my tone or what do you mean my tone or anything like that even though I felt like I was in the right and after praying about it and deciding that there wasn't anything that I had said or done wrong but I also didn't need to point that out in the moment And I didn't need to correct him and put him in his place in the moment. Later on, and we've since learned how to have these moments called sanctuary that we have learned from our friends at Wed Into War. And it's a weekly discussion that we have about things that come up like that, that rubbed us the wrong way or were irritating or were technically wrong on the other person's part, but wasn't necessarily something we needed to fix or talk about in the moment. 
So that's something that I have learned is how to practice humility in the moment. Because, you know, with fight or flight, I fight. And with when I'm challenged or when I feel right in something in the past, I've asserted myself in the moment and so-called put him in his place. But that has never been a helpful strategy. And that has been my pride rising to the top and showing off and causing damage. And maybe, and I can probably assume that you've had those moments too. So that's an example of how practicing humility, again, doesn't mean being meek. It's not like that happened and I'm allowing him to walk all over me or gaslight me or anything. There's a time and a place to bring things up in discussion. And oftentimes it's not right there in the moment. And you know, you might be totally fed up with your husband's behavior or his lack of communication or his sin struggle. But guess what? So was God with our sin. So much so that he humbled himself and sent his son to serve us and sacrifice to the point of death for us. I think Jesus knows what it's like to see sin and want to smash it and destroy it. And there were some consequences for that in the Old Testament. But what continues to transform hearts and lives and bring healing is the humility and love of Christ. So what can humility look like in your marriage when you're in the middle of a heated discussion with your husband? We don't need to look any further than how Jesus did it. Don't look at how I did it. Look how Jesus did it. He listened. He leaned in. He took breaks to connect with the Father. He thought before he spoke. He showed emotional restraint. He asked questions. He pointed back to the truth of God's word. Now for the second one, humility plays into this one too, because as I mentioned earlier in Proverbs 11:2, with humility comes wisdom. And when we humbly confide in and rely on and surround ourselves with people in our lives that can point us back to truth of God's word, we are convicted, we are transformed, we're challenged to do better, and are healed. This second point is wise counsel. And last week I mentioned that people was a potential danger to your marriage, and I made a point as to why that is and why people can be a danger to your marriage and your spiritual health, but it can also be part of the remedy, a different kind of people or a different group of people. God uses us to help each other but there's a way to distinguish what's healthy community and what's actually aiding in our ailment. Like Job and his friends who tried to get him to blame God or see things the way that they did. I know it can be tricky. Proverbs 11:14 says, "Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors there is victory." Proverbs 12:15 claims that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You want to succeed in your marriage? Proverbs 19, 20, and 21 says, Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. I think in those verses, I I see a few things. The first thing I see is the word listen, listening to the counsel, because That takes discernment. That takes obedience. It takes knowing that you are surrounded by the right people because Job had counsel around him. He had friends, but were they wise? Were they speaking truth? He could have listened to them. And there was a time when I listened to 
counsel to friends who spoke things into my life and over my marriage that were not good, that were not truth, that were not healthy. And it only made things worse. The bitterness in my heart grew even deeper. The selfish thoughts were even more selfish. (laughs) Um, It was not pointing out my sin and exposing anything. So listening is key when it's the right people, when it's the right wise counsel. And the second thing I notice is accepting that counsel, listening to the counsel and accepting that discipline because discipline in the moment does not feel good. It's a consequence for a choice or an action. It's meant to correct and help you not do that again. (laughs) And as a kid, I'm sure you can think of times when you were disciplined and it just was no fun. It hurt, it stung, it kept you from having fun, but it also made you a better person and protected you. And that's the point of wise counsel in your life. And so part of it is praying for the right people, is putting yourself out there, is comparing what they're saying to the word of God. And the advice that your friends are giving you, does it line up with what God's word says or does it go against it? And the other part of wise counsel is just the fact that you have people around you because Avoiding people altogether isn't the answer either. Isolation was one of our silent killers in our marriage. And there's another aspect of that, which is people pleasing. So there's avoiding people altogether, or there's just giving in and pleasing others and allowing others to influence your thoughts and choices in your marriage. Like I said, that don't line up with God's word. And that will lead to further discontentment, destruction, and sometimes even divorce. And I know because it's happened in my own marriage. The way to protect your marriage is to sit in the right godly community and be protected by people that are pointing out the log in your own eye, showing you the sin in your own heart, sitting around the table with you, praying with you, and also fighting against the real enemy that isn't our flesh and blood. When we want to turn to our husbands and blame them for everything, they'll remind you he's not your enemy and they'll help turn outward and fight the enemy with you. Our community group that we meet with Every other week is life-giving. It's who we go to when we need prayer for a tough situation in our marriage or our life. And it's who we study the Bible with. It's who we trust to keep us humble. So moving on to the third point, the third way to protect your marriage and safeguard it is vulnerability. Now these first two ways that we talked about are important, but they can't be done without this third point. Building on humility and wise counsel we come to this third way, which is vulnerability. And it might seem kind of backward, like, would you turn belly up and let someone poke you? (laughs) Would you want to sit in front of a group of people exposed? Would you want to open a festering wound and cause more pain? Well, if the end goal is to heal, yes. Now, again, there's a difference between being vulnerable to attack and exposing your position to the enemy or airing all your dirty laundry for anyone and everyone. Being vulnerable here as a method to safeguard your heart and your marriage is the opposite of last week's point of pretending or being fake. Because this type of vulnerability is laying down your pride, your walls, your hiding behind that fake smile. It's sharing with that trusted group of wise counsel the raw and damaged places. It's exposing the sin that you've been hiding and bringing it to light. This type of vulnerability 
as one of the definitions in the dictionary says, willingness to show emotion or to allow one's weaknesses to be seen or known. It's allowing other people to know you better. And that was probably the scariest thing that I had to learn in my personal journey to healing was allowing other people to know. I was pretty good at keeping things in. From the time I was a kid, people just didn't know what was going on inside my mind, but it ate away at me. Any little thing, any little mistake, any little sin, I wanted to keep it hidden. I wanted to come across as perfect. I saw it as a weakness if people knew, and that totally played a huge destructive role in my marriage as well. So being willing to show emotion and let other people know what you're struggling with is how we allow the things that have been buried deep inside to come to the surface. And you know, why would we do this? Why would I sit in front of a group of four other women every other week and confess that I've been struggling with something? Why would I let them know about that dirty part of me? Why would you ask your pastor's wife to pray over a recent mistake or confide in your counselor about a sin that you committed? Because how can we let go of something if we're clinging to it? How can we run free if we're in chains? If something is kept in the dark, how can it ever be seen for what it really is? It's going to seem bigger, scarier. It's going to, we're going to more easily forget about it if we just leave it in the dark, not realizing that it's still there. (laughs) It's imperative for us to drag it out into the light so that God can set us free from it. But we have to be willing to let it go. Ephesians 5, 11 through 14 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed to the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Being vulnerable with trusted, wise counsel in humility Confessing your sins, your ugly thoughts, your selfish actions, your angry words, your bitterness will expose to the light and allow it to be healed, restored, and cleaned. There can't be healing without something first being broken. The fourth and last point is attentiveness. And last week, the fourth uh, danger was passivity. So this is the, the counterpart to that. In Ezekiel and 2 Samuel, there's a lot written about the watchmen. And watchmen were men who were set up high on the walls of a fortress or wherever they were staying. They would uh, stand outside the gate or at the gate and watch for enemies. And they would see the enemy coming from up high and they would blow the trumpet to warn the people. They would be up high on the roof. They would be alert and aware. It was their job to bring awareness, to alert the people of what was coming. And in one of those verses, it says, The faithful watchman will give the alarm at the approach of the enemy, will blow the trumpet in the ears of the sleeping sinner and endeavor to awake him. And that's what Holy Spirit is doing. That's what you partnering with Holy Spirit is doing for your own self and your marriage is pointing out and waking up the sleeping sinner in you. Being alert for the enemy that is out to break you apart. 
Another verse says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. And so sin has its own consequences, but if we are called to protect and safeguard our marriage, that's on us. If we don't do our part, if we and our husbands don't partner together with Holy Spirit, keeping watch for the enemy and being aware of the sin in our own hearts, that's going to destroy from the inside out. Or it's going to give Satan a foothold to allow things to come in when we aren't looking. So what do you see in your heart? What do you see in your marriage and what's really going on? Where is the enemy coming from? Which side is at risk or weak? What needs rebuilding? What doors need to be closed? What gates need to be locked? It's a team effort over here. Locking doors at night, remembering to lock the windows that we'd open in the daytime. That's my fault. My husband's always like, you forgot this one. <laughs> Turning off the lights that the kids left on. Checking broken things. Calling the maintenance guys. Passivity or delay or fear of the unknown or a lack of resources has caused things in our house to break even further, becoming an even bigger mess to clean up later. Attentiveness breeds action. Paying attention allows you to take swift action or the right action, aiming your weapon correctly, firing with accuracy. So when it comes to protecting your marriage, the enemy's got a target on you too, and his aim is set. God's given us the tools like humility, wise counsel, vulnerability or honesty, exposing things to the light, and attentiveness to take action. Are you safeguarding your heart? Are you protecting your marriage? Loads of love, Lydia. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I'll see you next Saturday, same time, same place.